Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. The vast majority of politicians are thoroughly resistive to these approaches, but we do see a small number that have actually stepped over a line and actually when we see that we deal with it part of that is education hi i'm daniel hurst guardian australia's foreign affairs and defense correspondent coming to you from the lands of the ngunnawal and ngambri peoples in this episode of australian politics my guest is mike burgess the head of australia's domestic intelligence agency asio it's rare for a spy boss to sit down for an interview but he agreed to answer our questions in the wake of an explosive speech this week. On Wednesday, Burgess delivered his annual statement on the security threats Australia faces, and he alleged that an unnamed former Australian politician, quote, sold out their country, party and former colleagues after being recruited by spies for a foreign regime. Burgess also detailed the activities of aspiring he labelled the A-team, meaning the Australia team, whose members trawled professional networking sites looking for Australians with access to sensitive information before the spy ring's cover was blown late last year. In an interview at ASIO headquarters in Canberra on Friday, I asked Burgess for more details about these claims and the big question why he chose to make them public without naming the former politician. We also spoke about increased community tensions in Australia as the Israel-Gaza conflict continues and whether ASIO needs more oversight. Mike Burgess, thanks very much for speaking with us. It's great to be here. Now, let's start with the most startling part of your threat assessment speech. You said spies had successfully cultivated and recruited a former Australian politician. This politician, you said, sold out their country, party and former colleagues to advance the interests of the foreign regime. Now, that's a pretty big claim. What do you actually mean by selling out Australia? So what sorts of things did this former politician actually do? Yeah, so a range of things. Um helping select people and invite people to an overseas conference. And at that overseas conference, all expenses paid, including airfares, they were met by bureaucrats. Those bureaucrats were not bureaucrats. They were members of a foreign intelligence service. They were there to cultivate relationship, see who had access to government information and build that rapport so they could obtain sensitive information that would not normally be available to them. This was done wittingly, not, not sort of indirectly. This person knew what they were doing. And they knew what they were doing for a foreign intelligence service. Correct. Uh, why have you chosen not to name this former politician? What do you say to the criticism from some that this sort of besmirches all former politicians? Sure. I understand the interest in this case. And I respect the rights of people to have opinions which don't align with mine. I don't agree with people who think I should name them. ASIO doesn't name individuals or share any operational details for very good reasons. A couple of things to say there. The purpose of raising this example was to raise awareness so politicians and budding politicians know what this threat looks like so they can be resistive to it and report any inappropriate approaches. So that's the awareness raising bit. The other reason why we don't share the name, of course, we want the Foreign Intelligence Service to know 
We know it was you. We know you were behind this. But we don't want to give away everything because we have to protect our people, our sources and methods. And that's paramount in my business. That is our secret source. That's why we continue to be successful. But it is it is a huge claim to make and you must have known it would set off a round of speculation and intrigue. So what are you hoping to get out by disclosing this story and how do you weigh that up against the lack of detail, the sort of not naming them and the controversy it's caused? Sure. So my purpose, ever since I've been Director General, you might have noticed that I'm actually very effective at actually talking about the threats Australians face. I think that's incredibly important. You have a security service. People have to know why we exist and who we are, not how we do it. And it's important that we take the effort to explain the threats to the people we protect. So principal objective was awareness raising. I think I've certainly met that objective. I get the interest I've said this many times, the vast majority of politicians are thoroughly resistive to these approaches, but we do see a small number that have actually stepped over a line. And actually, when we see that, we deal with it. Part of that is education. Now, you said that this form of politician did it wittingly, but now that this case study has been disclosed this week, do they know who they are? Did ASIO ever confront them directly? So I won't go into operational details and give you more other than to say this person knows who it is. And let me clear with your listeners, this person no longer proposes a threat to security. The harm has been dealt with and there is no remaining security issues. Were these activities legal at the time because they predated the 2018 espionage and foreign interference laws? That's correct. As you said, this is a historic matter. It was dealt with at the time, no longer of security concern. Do you continue to monitor this person? What makes you think they won't try it again? Well, so that's, a again, in general, we do see people who are threats to security. When we've concluded they're no longer a threat to security, we don't stay on them. We would not have the resources to do that. That's not a country I'd want to live in just quietly. But, of course, they are on a data holdings, and if we see indications they are active, again, engaging with foreign intelligence services, they will be subject to our investigation. One more on the activities of this former politician. You also said in your speech, at one point, the former politician even proposed bringing a prime minister's family member into the spy's orbit. Fortunately, that plot did not go ahead, close quote. Malcolm Turnbull's son, Alex, has told news.com.au he doesn't know if he's the family member you're referring to, but he says his experience fits that account. Alex Turnbull says he was the subject of a brazen approach by suspected Chinese intelligence agents about 2017. He says he wasn't interested and he reported it to Australian authorities. Are those two cases linked? So this one makes me chuckle because you just said, and what I said on the night, this approach did not go ahead. Mr Turnbull's talking an approach that actually he's alleging happened. I think you have your answer right there. Well, I guess the difference between the scheme not going ahead because it was rejected or, you know, it just, they never made the approach. The one you're talking I about, the they approach never made did the not approach. go ahead. Okay. So let's turn to the so-called A-team more broadly. First of all, this nickname you gave it, why the A-team? Well, they target Australia. This team is exclusively there to target Australia and a broad appetite. Of course, there's another little professional dig at them. They're not the A-team. So psychological warfare. Well, it's just we're allowed to have a little bit of fun, although our job is serious, and so I don't want to make too much light of it. But uh, the purpose of raising this example is to say there are foreign intelligence services, and there are multiple countries that do this, that target Australia directly. They come at us through various forms. This group in particular uses professional networking sites, connects with people online, talks about consulting work, offers them good money, draws them off if they get people interested, 
offers them all expenses, trips overseas, to cultivate that relationship, set them about tasking to meet their intelligence requirements. Mm. It's all about raising awareness. And you said this team was not just targeting people in politics, but also students, academics, business people, researchers, police, public servants. What sorts of activities should Australians be on the lookout for? Like I said before, if you get a suspicious approach online, if it's too good to be true in terms of the pay, and like, you're kidding, you want me to do that and you're going to offer me that much money? Or why would you be interested in that money? Why would you want to say, don't tell anyone who you're working for? There's a red flag right there. So there are numerous red flags in the approaches they do online. Unfortunately, in Australia, there are too many people who still advertise it where they work in great detail, which makes it easier for them. So it offer a little bit of caution there, especially for those with security clearances. But they also do work in the human space and they have already recruited other Australians and we're not all seeing or knowing. So sometimes they use those people to approach fellow Australians with, hey, I'd like to offer you some work. You're interested in a bit of consulting. It's the same thing, but it's done in person. This A-team seems to have been in operation for quite some years. It was only disrupted late last year. Well, they've been in operation for quite some years. And when we come across them, we deal with the problem when we see it. But this is an indication of the extent and, yes, time duration. What we've done in recent time, though, is we're confronting them. So it's not just a matter of stopping it. We've taken it up to them and we've confronted them directly. So... Last year, they thought they were recruiting an Australian. They weren't. They were recruiting an ASIO officer undercover. We confronted them. We told them, we know what you're up to. We know what you're doing. Stop it or there'll be further consequences. What was the reaction? Well, you can imagine the horror of the individual. Different do you think they've stopped? They've stopped in the particular case that we did and they do modify their behaviour. But no, we're under no illusions. Foreign intelligence services will adapt as we make the environment harder. But the other message here for... All foreign intelligence services do this. If you target Australians, ASIO's operating model is we will target you. We will make your job difficult, costly, and painful. We will sow doubt into what you collect. We will drive a cost into your business model that you'll start to question, and we know that will harden this environment. Some of our listeners might be thinking, well, every country spies. So what makes this different? I mean, obviously, your job is to detect and disrupt those particular threats here, but what <laughs> isn't this something that every country does? What's your sort of take on that? Yes, well, spying is, I think some people joke, it's the second oldest profession on the planet. Every country conducts espionage. Australia has foreign intelligence services that conducts espionage, so yes, they do. But we're talking about both espionage and foreign interference. So lots of people do it. We're spy catchers. Our job is to identify and understand these threats and when we see them, deal with them. The other thing that's different, because spying's always been a thing, it's the circumstance of global competition, great power competition and strategic circumstance. There is more appetite across governments for um, information that is unique, not publicly available. So covert insights, that's one of the reasons why you see intelligence services more active. We're more active in countering that. That's our job. Does raising the costs of these operations, you said, does does raising the costs at some point get to the point of recommending publicly attributing them to a certain country, such as China? Uh, yeah, so there will be times when the government or the Director General chooses to publicly acknowledge who is behind certain things, a particular thing or a broad category of things. But generally, as you said, spies spy. So calling them out in general circumstances doesn't really work. My job, we find it far more effective to 
stop them and confront them. And by raising awareness, again, one of the reasons why we do the threat assessments is so everyday Australians or politicians or budding politicians or people who work in defence industry or government actually are alert to this and they go, well, that looks a bit odd. I better tell my security manager or I might call the National Security Hotline or ASIO directly. That stops it. That makes Australia a safer place and protects Australians. Speaking of defence, you, you said in your speech the A-team was offering Australian defence industry employees money in return for reports on AUKUS, submarine technology, missile systems and many other sensitive topics. Do you have any reason to believe any information about AUKUS or sensitive defence technology has been compromised? I wouldn't ever comment on those matters publicly. What I can say, as I said in my speech there, the appetite is um, broad and their, activities at a, their activities are at a high rate. They are trying. We're not all seeing or knowing. I can't rule out that some information has been lost, but I'm confident, very confident, that when we know about a problem, we stop it. Some information might have been lost, might make people well, worried. Well, that's the world in we live. There's no absolute guarantees. Australia's security service cannot give everyone an absolute guarantee. That's why a response to these threats requires a national response. It's a team effort and raising awareness including when it upsets some people, a small number of people, is critically important because people need to be resistive to what spies might do and report sensitive or suspicious approaches. How intensively have you been working with giving assurances to the US and the UK that the AUKUS tech will be safe? Well, that's part of our day job, obviously. You've had conversations with them about what well, structures are place. You'd not be surprised. As I said in my speech, I embedded offers immediately that was our idea in the task force and Defence are doing a fantastic job at putting security in every step of the supply chain in the enterprise. And our British and American friends wouldn't have signed the AUKUS deal if they didn't think Australia was up to it. Of course, security is not just a point in time. We have to continue to do our job and we do that closely with our partners overseas and we share everything that we do. Now, in the speech, you also talked a lot about or you gave some details of particularly alarming examples of dissidents in Australia being threatened in diaspora communities. What can you tell me about how serious those threats are to people, critics in Australia, um, and what sorts of tactics are they using? What's the role of private contractors or security people in, in, sure. in hunting down people? Yeah, so foreign interference in the Australian diaspora communities is a serious threat to security. We've had examples of a regime using their foreign intelligence service to hire a contractor in this country to collect information on a critic of their regime, including where do they live, take photographs, do surveillance of them, get their bank account details, and even to the point of asking how much money it would take to get or have severe action taken against that dissident. Is that the same case that the Minister Claire O'Neill raised when raising the alarm about Iran? It is. Um, but more recently, we've had a case where a foreign regime has used their intelligence service to actually find an Australian to make a dissident, quote, disappear. Is that Iran as well? I won't comment on which country that was. Multiple countries do this, not just one. That's a serious example, a blunt example of what foreign inter interference is like. Uh, these are serious matters. When we see it, we are very effective at dealing with it. And what about the role of private security? Sure. So, you know, again, here's the thing about foreign intelligence services. They don't come wearing their badge or speak in their native language. So they will look to exploit our open and free society or news professions such as private investigators, which is a legitimate profession. And they come across with a cover story of a reason why they want something collected. 
And the private investigators may well be fooled by that, not because they're silly, because good intelligence services know how to build a good cover story, and they'll collect that information. What they don't know is what happens next. Now, yes, we have to rely on private investigators if that then steps to, okay, if I can give you some money to harm someone, well, that's when I'd expect the individual to go, well, that's unlawful in our country. I better report that to the police or the security service. So that's a a real example of how they can use our society against us. Now, I think you have raised the profile over the last few years of foreign interference and the threats that people face and you want people to be vigilant. But just on the other side of that coin, a recent study that UTS published about sentiment in the Chinese-Australian community found that many people in that community felt that the media reporting about Chinese influence had led to a sort of a culture of a, a widespread suspicion or even hostility towards that community. Does that give you pause for thought? What's your message to people about the line between vigilance and avoiding cheap sort of divided loyalty stereotypes? Yeah, it's a great question and we're aware of that report. And I've previously said publicly, the one thing we must guard against is as we tackle foreign interference, we don't turn on ourselves and actually drive divide and division into members of our diaspora communities. That's a great strength about our country. And if we turn on ourselves, and it is unfortunate that some commentators, not all, make it all about the hype. There's another reason why I don't go to particular countries, because some countries attract more attention than others. Make it about the behaviours, but make it very clear the vast majority of communities in this country, they are not the problem. It's the foreign regime and the foreign intelligence services that are actually undertaking clandestine behaviours. That's what we must focus on, not our fellow Australians. Let's stick with the issue of community harmony. You've said the Israel-Gaza conflict is resonating here in Australia. What are the implications for security in Australia? So, as I said early on after that, those horrible events of 7th October, recognising that it will resonate here. We have, again, multicultural society. We have both sides or all sides covered, and people feel strongly about these matters, which is entirely appropriate to feel strongly and how you feel. What's not appropriate or where we need to be careful is in their use of our language. We've had many protests. Protests are of no interest to ASIO. They're lawful in this country. We do care about, though, people who think violence at a protest is planned for a political cause or promoting community violence, that's unacceptable. We and the police will deal with it if we see it. We recognise sometimes at protests a little bit of heat and there is some spontaneous violence. It's not really our interest, but we put people plan it, we look at that. So it has happened like that. Most of the protests, though, are peaceful. There have been many, many protests. Of course, sometimes you do get people who have horrible or awful views, but their behaviours are still lawful. It's something as a society we need to press into and have continuing conversations about. We're worried, though, about a small number of individuals who would see the heat of this situation and it inspires them or it's the trigger that they think violence is the answer and they go to violence with little or no warning. Very early, as you said, in this conflict, you said inflamed language may fuel community tensions and that words matter. How much of that message was aimed at the political class? It was aimed at everyone, not just the political class. I put myself in that category when we're talking about, as you recognise, the media as well. I've seen some, I know the journalists are really good, but sometimes the headlines they get given, I'd just say, oh, come on, be very careful. So I was really aiming that at all Australians. Just watch your language. By all means, make your point. 
but inflamed language does lead to inflamed tension and that does lead to violence and we should not want that as a society. And in that vein, and to be clear, I'm raising the following question only because it's been raised by a major political party in Australia, not because I want to cast dispersions on an entire community. The coalition has raised security concerns about the approval of visas for hundreds of Palestinians fleeing the conflict. And the Liberal Senator James Patterson said in November that he's not reflecting on ASIO, but really hope pressure hasn't been put on them or the Department of Home Affairs to cut corners or do this more quickly than you already would. What role does ASIO have in the security checks for those visas and can you give that reassurance? So, so there's many elements to that question, so let me break that down for you. ASIO has a role in the visa process. I won't explain that fully because we don't want people to game that process, but I can assure you ASIO is involved. Home Affairs has the lead and Home Affairs knows what it's doing when it comes to these processes. If there was pressure put on my organisation, I have an obligation under Australian law to protect my organisation from politicisation or anything that's inappropriate and I would take action if that happened. I haven't needed to do that. I'm confident we're doing our job well and where we see problems, we deal with them effectively. Of course, we're not all seeing and all knowing and Information available to everyone, including Home Affairs, is not 100%, but I'm confident in the process is where it needs to be. But we keep an open mind to that and we remain vigilant. So if there was any doubt, you wouldn't sign off on a particular individual? Well, our role, obviously, if we have grounds to say that we are going to impact that individual, we have to have the evidence and that's subject to a rigorous assessment. It can't just be, I feel there's a bit of doubt, so we'll do it. We don't work that way. I want to close off with a few questions under the broad theme of accountability and oversight, given ASIO has extraordinary powers and largely operates in the shadows. Multiple reviews are now underway into an undercover counter-terror operation that targeted a 13-year-old boy with autism with a fixation on Islamic State. The boy, known by the pseudonym Thomas Carrick, was granted a permanent stay on terror-related charges last October after a magistrate found police further radicalised him during the operation and, quote, doomed his efforts at rehabilitation. What role did ASIO have in signing off on this joint operation with the AFP and Victoria Police? And have you had any cause for soul-searching on this case? Sure. So obviously, I'm not going to go into great details on this case, but your question is a fair one. We are a member of the joint counterterrorism teams in state and territories, and therefore we are a member of the joint counterterrorism team in Victoria. And when a member of that group takes action, we're backing that and we're part of that process. Of course, the police do their job, we do our job, but I stand with them on the work that they've done. I know the AFP are doing their review and we'll stand by them, but... Final thing I would say, and this is not a comment on the judiciary and where those, I guess, findings came about, the information I have before me, it's a different thing. Let me address that a different way. When ASIO and the Australian Federal Police come along, we're at the wrong end of the scale. We do not radicalise people. We investigate threats to security and we will use more intrusive powers if we see and have the ability to justify those more intrusive powers to understand the nature of the threat to either help it be mitigated or reduced or dealt with under law. Dealing with minors is incredibly difficult. And of course, when we do investigate minors, we have a whole range of extra policies, procedures and approval processes we must go through to consider the rights of the child. And I know the police work in the same fashion. 
stepping away from the individual, just sort of more structural, systemic issues, how is ASIO dealing with people with autism or with neurodiversity when somebody might be consuming extremist material and assessing that? Is this a line of work that you're considering more broadly as you assess people's motivations? No, it's a good question. Obviously, we have to consider the in terms of what we know about an individual. If we see signs of that, we actually get the right expert help in to help us work through that. Again, I'd stress, if we're coming up to someone who is suspected of being radicalised or we know is radicalised, we're at the wrong end of the scale. The radicalisation of minors is a broader society problem that we must address. And occasionally, sadly, there are minors that have actually planned acts of terrorism and that has to be dealt with by us and the police. And on the accountability question, the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security has about $45 million in annual funding, ASIO's funding, I think, from what I looked at the last time, was more like what was above $800 million. You might have an updated figure. How can they keep an effective watch on on what you're doing, given the scale of your responsibilities and the sort of resourcing disparity there? Well, really, that is a question for the Inspector General of Intelligence Security in terms of does he and his organisation have the right resources? What I can say, obviously, that organisation is paramount as one of our oversight mechanisms, standing powers of a Royal Commission, they have full access to everything ASIO does. There is nothing I or any of my officers would, can or would withhold from the Inspector General. We support this oversight. It's a great thing for this country. It's also a great ability to defend my organisation when I and my people cannot defend themselves publicly. An example of that would be people do have a legal right to make complaints to the Inspector General about what they think we've done. Mr. Duggan, and I won't go into his cases, made allegations to the Inspector General about my organisation. The Inspector General conducted his own inquiry, full access to everything we did. He found all the allegations against us were unfounded. That's course, been completed now. That's that been completed and all allegations unfounded. That's a great example of how oversight can also help defend us and how a so citizen... So to be clear to listeners, this is Daniel Duggan, the Australian citizen who... The US wants to extradite, and he raised a complaint about ASIO as part of this. It is that uh, Mr. Duggan, he did raise a number of allegations with the Inspector General, which is his right. So any Australian has the right to do that. The Inspector General determines whether they investigate or not. In this case, he chose to. He's conducted his investigation and found all allegations unfounded. And lastly, on the question of funding and resources, your annual threat assessment speech has become quite a thing each year. It usually has quite interesting anecdotes in it, and it, it's quite headline-friendly, tends to be. Is there any coincidence in the fact that this is usually done around the time the federal government's budget submission process begins, and are you chasing any more funding or powers this year? So, well, there's so much in that, no. It's actually just the start of the year. It's a good thing to do at the start of year. If anyone who knew how the budget process works, actually me giving one public address does not influence or enable any of that process. I often laugh when people say that we each year exaggerate the threats to get more money. That could not be true because those people who say that clearly don't understand how the budget process works. I do the threat assessment each year because I want to explain the threats to the people we protect. I want to build trust through transparency by explaining what we are and what we do and why it matters, not how we do it. And it's a shameless approach at pushing the brand because we need to recruit the best and brightest Australians from the entire gene pool of Australia to represent the society we protect. And it's very effective in that regard. 
in regards to the resources, our business is getting more expensive, but that's the same for every Australian. That's a topical conversation around every dinner table in the evening. Um, We are a well-resourced organisation. We have effective laws. My job through the budget process is to argue for more laws if I need it. I have to justify it publicly when I do, and the same with resources. Final thing I'd say on that regards, because you mentioned it and it's an opportunity, with the laws, people keep saying we collect more and more powers. My organisation doesn't. We have been involved in putting submissions in that actually ask for or suggest we no longer need that power. If you would go to the Parliamentary Joint Committee of Intelligence Security website and see our latest submission on the review of ASIO questioning powers, we're suggesting an element of questioning minors is a power that we no longer need. That's not the earlier one that you never used? Well, no. We have, today, we have the ability to question warrants, uh, do compulsory questioning warrants of minors. We have not used them. We asked for an extension of those powers last time the review was done because the threat environment, in my mind, justified that ask. Parliament agreed. Now we're saying we've seen a recession in the number of minors. It's still an issue, but we've now concluded ASIO, that's not the point you want to deal with the problem, and therefore we do not need the compulsory questioning power of a minor. Those matters are best dealt through other authorities. Mr Burgess, thanks very much for taking the time to answer our questions. Thanks so much for having me. This episode was produced by James Milsom. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Daniel Hurst. Thanks for listening.